Good morning, church family. How are you? Good morning, family online. My name's Catherine. I'll be teaching today. And uh, I actually need Jeremy's energy level because I'm going to be talking about uh, church history, church theology. We're in our Trinity series. This is the second uh, Sunday. Last week, um, Brian kicked us off with a great intro. He spoke about the concept of the triune God, um, how it's unique to Christianity. He talked about um, how the idea of God as three in one is uh, implicit in the Hebrew scriptures and made more explicit in the New Testament, how Paul and the other New Testament writers often use this triadic structure of talking about Father, Son, and Spirit, always in the same sentence, always in the same paragraphs. And I was really taken with that uh, beautiful image of love that uh, Brian ended his message with last week, um, where he talks how love creates unity. And that is something that this series, not as much today and next week, because it's me, but in the following week when it's Wayne and then Ginny, the series will move towards this understanding of a relationship of love that is what the Trinity is about. But um, this Sunday I'm going to cover some history of the church. Uh, how did earliest Christians think and talk about Jesus and God and the Spirit? And next Sunday I'm going to focus on the Nicene Creed. Uh, who grew up in a church that where they said the Nicene Creed? Who has no idea what I'm talking about when I say the Nicene? Perfect. You guys show up next Sunday. <laughs> All right. Um, but today, again, the reason I need Jeremy's energy is I'm going to cover about 250 years of church history in 25 minutes, maybe. But before I do that, I want to talk about this. This is the image that we chose for our series on the Trinity. And one of the um, perks of being uh, on the teaching team and having to wrangle those teachers into things is that sometimes I just get to make a decision by myself if they're all going, uh. And so here's the story behind this one. Uh, a couple months ago, I started taking a geology class online, free class, uh, video-based, totally geology for dummies. I didn't want you to think I'm smart and I know anything about geology. That's why I said all that. My husband and I, we have family up and down California and also in Arizona. We do a lot of driving. And so the landscape has become very interesting to me, and I wanted to know more about the landscape. So that's why I started taking this geology class. And um, one of the sessions was on uh, th things that actually shape our earth, shape the landscape. And so clearly it's earthquakes shape the landscape, tectonic plates shape the landscape, movement of plates, um, Volcanoes with lava, water, erosion, vegetation, people. We do a lot of damage and shaping of the landscape. But then he put on this image, or not this one, an image of a braided river. And you can go ahead and do the next one if you want, I hope. And I was just so taken with the concept of a braided river. And there's another one, and we can go back and forth, or you can just... Oh, Sorry. Got all amped up about this for a second. Um, and that felt weird. Uh, 
The braided image, or the braided river, braided rivers always start in a mountain where there's glaciers and snow. And um, they come down the mountain really fast. And now remember from our understanding of scripture, we know that God always meets his people at a mountain, on a mountaintop. This is the place where God and, and humanity often interact. These braided rivers come down these mountains really fast. And they are carrying sediment and gravel and rocks and nutrients. And then they hit the plains, the level area, and they slow down. And as they slow, the sediment... The gravel, the rocks, the nutrients drop out, and it creates these amazing patterns of tiny rivers with islands in between them. And uh, no matter, some of these, they also widen. A, a braided river where it hits the level plain can be almost a mile across. And so you could be standing in one part of this river and be completely unaware of the rest of the river around you because you're surrounded by an island or land. And, and it made me think both of each tiny little part of the river is the river, right? No matter where you are standing in the water, you're in the river, even though you're completely unaware of all these other parts of the river. You're standing in... Uh, it, rivers create fertile farmland. Uh, uh, braided rivers in particular create fertile farmland around them. And it re- was this image of this life-giving love, for me, came of, about the Trinity, came out of this braided river. But also today, we're going to see all these streams of history of the church that are converging. And they have... They look different from each other, they sound different, and yet it's still the same church. So that's what, that's why that image is there. Sorry. I think I just had the regular amount of coffee this morning, but now I'm starting to think maybe I didn't. You all know I love history. History is super helpful. You probably know uh, it helps you in your own family history, Right? explains to you why you have the traditions that you have, why you do the things that you do, why you have certain, the way you value things. So history is important in families. Some of us have done our DNA history, and wow, that's interesting, huh? Because that answers some questions, but it also raises a a lot of questions for people like, whoa, what's happening back then? Um, But the reason I bring this up is because In today's talk, and possibly uh, next week's talk about the creed, you're going to be hearing some things about the church that maybe you were unaware of that might make you just slightly uh, uncomfortable because you might be thinking, wait, we didn't always think alike? We didn't always know exactly what we were talking about? We didn't always agree? That's right. We didn't. So, before, this is the actual message now. I'm actually starting right now. Uh, before we had any of the writings from the earliest believers in the form of gospels or letters, the faith was transmitted orally. People talked about Jesus. And these first people talking about Jesus were Jewish. They were Aramaic-speaking, temple-worshipping Jews talking about Jesus. And they were a sect within Judaism. There were other sects besides these Jesus followers, like the Pharisees and the Essenes, but they were a sect within Judaism. And for these earliest believers, 
on the one hand, Jesus was a normal human with parents and siblings, and he worked as a day laborer, and he was a victim of the oppressive Roman government. But on the other hand, he was the bearer of God's authority, and he, Jesus himself, was the active presence of God walking among them. And they knew this, these earliest believers, because they had walked with Jesus. Or they knew people who had walked with Jesus, and they trusted those people's understanding of who Jesus was. And they knew he was the bearer of God's authority because of the resurrection. We often think because of the miracles or the healings that he did. But for them, the resurrection was the proof that Jesus was the Christ, the anointed one. And for them, Jesus fit into this known biblical category, a biblical framework found in the Torah regarding God's activity in the world and God's promises to his people. These earliest believers had met the risen Jesus, or they trusted the ones who told of meeting the risen Jesus. And they'd also experienced this outpouring of the Spirit, the Spirit that was promised by Jesus. And this created an upswelling of faith. And they were willing to die over their belief, their conviction, that they had encountered the risen Christ. These first apostles, Paul and the other New Testament writers were convinced that the resurrection demonstrated that Jesus was the one whom God would send to fulfill all things. And so this is a verse from Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be son of God, with power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name, including you. Did I leave a... Oh, how we're called to belong. And did you notice how triadic that sentence, which, by the way, is a typical Paul sentence. It goes on forever with no punctuation. But did you notice how triadic that sentence was? Jesus, Spirit, and Father are mentioned over and over and over again together in this, in many places in the New Testament. So Christianity would have likely remained a sect within Judaism, except for the fact that Uh, Hellenistic Jews, Greek-speaking Jews, began to follow Jesus or follow this understanding of who Jesus was. And these believers did not have quite as strict a view of the importance of temple and the law as the Aramaic-speaking Jews did. And they were making claims about Jesus that made uh, temple-worshipping Jews very uncomfortable And so we can read in Acts that the Aramaic-speaking, temple-worshipping Jews began to persecute the Greek-speaking Jewish followers of Jesus, which led to an exodus from the church in uh, uh, ancient Israel, an exodus of these Greek-speaking Jews to places where they felt more welcome and comfortable, Samaria, 
Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, and the church began to spread. It spread with those people that were, in essence, kind of pushed out of uh, Jerusalem. And shortly thereafter that, and during the same time, the writers whose books have entered the New Testament began to incorporate ideas with their readers that would resonate with their readers, especially Greek-speaking believers, whether they were Jewish or Gentile. Paul wrote in Corinthians to believers who were being ridiculed because they were following, uh, they put their faith in a shamefully executed criminal. And Paul counters on their behalf that it's actually evidence of divine wisdom and power that this happened. Because this crucified Christ that they follow is for the entire cosmos, the active power and purpose of God. This idea of divine wisdom existing over and above the visible world, yet ordering this visible world, was a very familiar concept in the Greek-speaking world, both in religion and in philosophy. And we see this same logic used by John in his gospel when he calls Jesus the Logos, word, wisdom, reason. Again, a concept that his audience would have been very familiar with. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. The Word became flesh and lived among us. We have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. For John, the Logos pre-exists creation. The Logos is both divine and creative. And most people of his time would have nodded their heads and said, yes, of course, we agree with that. But then John goes on to say something just utterly startling, that the eternal Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, what, about, what is helpful about this for us this morning is that we can see by the end of the first century, so we're getting up to those years between 60 and 100, by the end of the first century, this understanding of, the, uh, of Christ as something divine incarnate has come to be the dominant perspective not the only perspective, but the dominant perspective within Christianity of who Jesus is. That Christ, called Lord, is the bearer of a new and immortal life, which believers are called to share. And that created the definite schism, the permanent schism with Judaism. There was no more Jewish followers of Jesus under the umbrella of Judaism. So that was the first 100 years. That wasn't so bad, right? Okay. By the mid-2nd century, so like 150 AD, 150 Common Era, Christianity was represented in what? In those purple spots. What we would call uh, Turkey, Syria, Macedonia, Greece and Rome, probably Egypt, but definitely by the end of the 2nd century, Christianity had spread to Egypt and North Africa, the green bits are by the 300s, the late 200s and the 300s, and we're going to get to those. 
Now, during this time, so we're talking about basically the 200s. During this time, the writings, the Christian writings, the Christian literature of the period, of which there is a great deal, reveal that there was a lot of theological conflict and debate going on. Such as, what is the meaning and the value of Jewish scriptures to non-Christians? And how should churches organize themselves? Because up till then, they'd kind of organized themselves the way uh, it had been done within the, uh, the synagogues. Who has authority in these church communities? What writings are authoritative? How should Christians live in a pagan world? What are we going to do about Christians who deny Christ during times of persecution but want to return to the church when things are safe again? There were sporadic uh, and uh, fairly frequent but often very localized persecutions of Christians. It was not, except for a couple times in uh, the history that we're going to cover this week and next week, there were very, it was only like three times where there were empire-wide persecutions. But these questions that I had there on the screen are things that the earliest Christians within the sect of Judaism hadn't had to think about. But now they did. And of course, everyone had strong opinions and widely differing positions. So there was division and debate in these Christian communities. Um, when we had that map over on, on up there, you don't have to put it back, Jared, it's okay. The color purple spread kind of evenly all around, right? It makes you think that Christianity is spreading evenly all around. But it wasn't. It was, okay, thanks. It was just in cities. It was a very urban belief. It traveled with missionaries and with business people and merchants. And so it's, it's a very urban um, religion during this time. So anyway, there was division and debate as Christians had to wrestle with things that they hadn't had to do before. But on the other hand, there were these forces that were pushing these small communities, and they are very small communities of Christians. The largest one is probably in Rome. The second largest one was probably in Alexandria. Pushing these churches to come to common solutions, kind of a collective pressure compelling that they make up their collective minds about what it is that they stand for. So what were these compelling pressures? Well, the first one is actually the most important one to me. It was the Christian movement's most basic conviction about itself, that the followers of Jesus belonged to a chosen race, a holy nation, that they were God's own people. No matter how scattered they were, no matter how socially stratified they were, they were aware of themselves as a single people. Their belief in Jesus was their predominant identity. And they saw themselves as a people whose Shared citizenship was not the coveted Roman citizenship, but whose shared citizenship was as the people of God. And this explains why they took 
disagreements so seriously and why they felt compelled to seek shared resolutions. The second thing, uh, the cohesive thing that was holding them together was their insistence that the teaching and the practice of the churches had to be based in and consistent with the work of Jesus and the first generation of disciples, which was what they had learned from the oral tradition that was now appearing in their writings. The words of Jesus, the actions of the disciples and the earliest church leaders were found, that were found in the earliest known writings were, for these believers, the most authoritative. And in the second hundred years that this is taking place, that included the four Gospels that we know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the collected letters of Paul, which often circulated as a, now, at this time, a total collection going from church to church. And then a few other epistles were also authoritative. And that led to this, the other thing that held them together, that the church life, no matter where across the empire churches, these small communities of believers were gathering, no matter where they gathered, their life was shaped by shared practices, regular common actions such as baptism, which was always triadic in content. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Shaped by shared confessions for membership. Regular gatherings to celebrate the resurrection through prayer and praise and preaching and taking communion. No matter what language was spoken, no matter what social class you were part of, no matter what ethnicity you, were, you belonged to, you share, you Christians shared a symbolic language that helped them to maintain unity and cohesion throughout the empire. And then the fourth thing that held these Christian communities together was that they demonstrated a lifestyle that was very different from the culture around them. They tended to be more ascetic. They practiced disciplines of fasting and prayer. They did not enter into second marriages. They did not put unwanted babies to death. They did not attend the pagan festivals. They did not work at any occupation that looked as if it was serving the pagan gods. And it made them, obviously, an alternative society within an empire, which made them seem suspicious and easy scapegoats if there were localized problems in politics or whatever. You could blame the Christians. Roman religion was a civic religion. The Romans believed that their, uh, what they did publicly for the gods is, was in turn the gods then bolstered the Roman Empire. So Roman civic religion was actually a form of patriotism. And because the Christians did not participate at all in the Roman civic religion, uh, they were viewed as uh, treasonous. But it also meant that they missed out on all the social and civic capital that was available, like good jobs, good marriages, ability to move up in the world, which then meant, of course, that Christians had to take care of each other. There was no help coming from the outside. So they were uh, practiced mutual assistance. They took care of each other. An early writer of this time, Clement I, tells that some believers actually sold themselves into slavery in order to get the money to help other believers. 
And all of this means that at the end of the second century, uh, Christians just had a low tolerance for fundamental disagreement or conflict and a deeply embedded desire to be a people with a shared identity in Jesus. And uh, it generated among the Christian writers of the time, because they could see how suspiciously uh, their faith made them viewed by the uh, culture at large, it uh, caused them to want to write uh, uh, literature that would help explain Christianity to the larger culture, um, to explain how this faith and how the virtues and the morals of Christians were actually an asset to the empire, not a liability. And, of course, in their writings, they used terms uh, that the greater Roman uh, culture and Greek-speaking culture would understand, terms like logos, terms like nuos, which meant... Um, uh, was how um, the, the ancients believed the mind perceived things, and all these writers would say, yes, Christians, the nuos of a Christian is shaped by the spirit. It enlightens them to see the things of God. Uh, arete is a, is a Greek word, but the Romans loved it, and it meant excellence. It was the word for virtue and whatever's commendable, whatever's good. And it's, you see Paul using that word in Philippians. Oh, hey. Um, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, that's arete. If there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you've learned and received and heard. Anyway, this new genre of writings, and Paul's writing is not of this genre, but I just remembered that he used that word in there. Uh, this new genre of writings in the late 200s is called uh, the Apologia, written by the Apologists. They're not saying, hey, we're sorry for being Christians. It's not that word. It's a Greek word, legal term that means defense. These were the, the writers who were writing a defense of the faith to the greater culture to help uh, Christians not be perceived so badly. Unfortunately, these writings had very little impact on the greater Roman culture, but they were highly valued in Christian circles because they were the first reasoned explanation of the faith uh, and of, of what became some of the basic tenets of the faith. And they were a way for Christians to kind of be in dialogue with the traditions of uh, the non-Christian Greek philosophical, religious, scientific thought that was permeating the world around them. So for one example, uh, one of the writers, and he's just a little bit ahead of the apologist, his name is Justin Martyr, and yes, he got that last part of his name the hard way. He died for his faith. But he, in his writings, said that Jesus Christ, the Logos, was a truth for all humans, not just for Christians, and a truth to which all historical traditions bear witness because Jesus is the concrete and human presence of this universal and creative logos, the very principle of world order himself. Again, what's important about these writings for us today when we're learning about the Trinity is that their work highlighted the need for Christians and the church to be able to speak with clarity and precision on difficult and fundamental issues such as the nature of evil. Where does evil come from? What do we mean when we say God? 
What do we mean when we say Jesus is human and divine? What is the activity of the Spirit in the world? Who gets to speak for the church? And how long are we going to debate on stuff before we agree to land on something? And it's a good thing that they started thinking this way because a really, really big problem that had been festering as a small problem but it really became a really, really big problem in the late uh, 200s. <clears throat> it was, it's the Gnostic crisis. crisis. I can say this. Gnostic crisis. Gnostic is spelled G-N-O-S-T-I-C. Gnostic and Gnosticism. That's the Greek word where we get our word knowledge. Um, so what was this Gnostic crisis? So Gnosticism was not a specific set of teaching. Instead, it was this really amorphous, broad-based, world-changing worldview. It was a philosophy. It was a religious mood that just started taking people's interest. And uh, they adopted a lot of the Gnostic thinking, which I'm going to get to in a minute. And uh, it's kind of hard for us to think about this, like how could kind of this nebulous way of thinking just start to kind of infiltrate uh, a culture? And it kind of reminded me, or kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, the way New Age thinking in uh, our Western culture was kind of a thing for several decades, and still is. I mean, it, it, it lingers among us. But where People, all of a sudden, who had no reason to be interested in Eastern religions or Eastern, you know, interested in Eastern religions or tarot or crystals or um, uh, reincarnation or visiting psychics. I mean, but you can't say this, 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 and this means New Age, right? It's, it's a very nebulous thing. And anybody could set themselves up as a, a New Age teacher or guru, right? You didn't go, go to seminary or some special New Age school to do it. Well, it was the same thing with Gnosticism. It was very, uh, it grabbed bits from different religions. It uh, grabbed bits from uh, myth. It grabbed things from philosophy. And there was no, like, one kind of Gnosticism, but it was just this mood that was traveling through the um, Roman world, the Roman Empire. It even picked up things from Judaism and the Hebrew text. Um, so you can't really define it, but you can, you, you become aware of it when you see it. So here we go. Here's, but Gnosticism in all its forms, and there's one form that was specifically Christian Gnosticism, and I'll get to it in a minute. But Gnosticism in all its forms Shared, had some shared characteristics. Gnostic writings offer a secret teaching which not everyone is capable of understanding. There's always something very deliberately riddle-like, uh, obscure, complex, or mystifying about uh, Gnostic teaching. And so it has to be explained to you. And you don't have to feel bad if you... Don't get it because clearly you're not one of the Gnostics in the know if you don't understand it. Gnostics did tend to write about an original or primordial reality existing beyond our ordinary thought and experience. 
very much into dualism. Uh, there were m sometimes two worlds, sometimes multiple worlds, but basically the material world, this world that we see right here, is bad, destined for destruction. There is another world, a world that only the Gnostics know how to get to and from. Um, that's the good world. And the Gnostics, the people in the know, are the special ones who've learned that they are actually spirit selves from this original world of light and knowledge. And unfortunately, they're displaced and imprisoned in this terrible, visible, material world. <clears throat> it probably sounds a little bit bizarre, and you might be wondering how people could fall for this, but it was fair, and that was very judgy, and I should not have said that. <laughs> it was very common... In the ancient world, for people to be attracted to uh, different ideas, Gnosticism, there was also a whole other uh, genre of religions called the mystery religions, which you... Uh, well, anyway, they, these religions or these worldviews, whatever they were, these philosophies, they appealed to the intellectuals in the society. They also appealed to people who were wealthy enough and had enough leisure time to pay to study with the Gnostics or to pay to be initiated into one of these mystery religions. Uh, if you think about it, you might notice Gnostic elements in Star Wars movies and Marvel movies and Harry Potter and The Matrix. And the difference for us is we watch these movies and read these books uh, as entertainment we appreciate them for storytelling craft. I mean, I'm a big Marvel fan, and I love Star Wars. But I don't watch them thinking that it's a revealed mystery to help me make sense of the world that I live in now and a way to get back to the original world that I should be at. But the reason Gnosticism became a really big issue for the early church is that some people with a Gnostic frame of mind converted to Christianity. And when they did, they brought this Gnostic worldview with them. And they learned and taught about their new faith, Christianity, in ways that resonated with their Gnostic worldview. And it's called Christian Gnosticism, and there are writings today that you could read by Christian Gnostics. And what the Christian Gnostics taught, in essence, is that there are two worlds. Now, again, there, there's not like all Christian Gnostics taught this, but in the writings you can see this stuff. There's two worlds headed by two different gods, a superior spirit world and a fallen inferior material world. There's also two Christs, a spirit Christ and a fleshly Christ. And uh, the spirit Christ took over the fleshly Christ, and so the Jesus that you see in the Bible only had the appearance of a body, but he could not have been flesh because Flesh is evil and cannot be redeemed. And other Gnostics said Jesus just showed up one day as an adult, no human birth, no human body. Some Gnostic Christians taught that the God of the Old Testament is not the good God and that the Old Testament did not anticipate the coming of Jesus. And one famous Christian Gnostic, Marcion, actually created his own canon of Christian writings that supported only his uh, views, so he cut out a lot of what we would call the Bible today, and he got rid of any Old Testament scriptures, any Jewish scriptures that did not support his views or that supported the idea that God could be known through the Old Testament. 
Okay. For Gnostics, this visible cosmos, this created world was evil, was destined for destructions. Some Gnostics said, well, since our bodies are evil and destined for destruction, we should cut ourselves off from all worldly uh, attachments and strive for martyrdom. Other Gnostics went the completely the other way. They said, since this is all bad, none of this matters, I can do what I want with it, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So there was like two camps. Among other ideas that were floating around during this time, not necessarily Gnostic, but other ideas, Jesus was just a man that God supercharged for just a short period and then adopted him into the divine world at the resurrection. Uh, some of these you're going to remember from the cute, that darling video that uh, Brian showed last week. The son is not co-eternal with the father. The son's role was to be a mediator between God and the cosmos. Or there's no distinction between the son and the father. It was the father who was born and suffered and died. Or that the father, son, and spirit are just different ways that God successively shows himself to the world. God has just different modes of being. So all these ideas and way more are being countered, pushed back by the Christian writers of the day. Irenaeus, Tertullian, Cyprian, Clement, uh, many of whom who lived in this second century time. They're putting out little fires all over the empire, which is very difficult to do in an age without the internet, printing press, text, emails. But church leaders all over the Roman Empire correctly understood that Gnosticism and these other ideas were a distortion of the teaching tradition of the church. And they were outraged, Christian writers of the time, that the, at the idea that the God of the Hebrew Bible is not identical to the creator of the cosmos. And they saw that this Gnostic um, uh, criticism of the Hebrew scriptures was denying God's self-revelation in history. And they also criticized the way the Gnostics interpreted the Gospels and Paul's letters. And they, uh, the church leaders just called the Gnostics out and said, you're willfully and deliberately avoiding and ignoring the plain sense of the words on the page. Basically telling the Gnostics, there's no way you can make these things say the things that you say that they are saying. But all of this internal conflict, conflict uh, in the first 250 years of the church was, turns out to be actually very helpful because it forced the church to deal with some issues and it caused the church to develop consensus around core ideas. So here are the core ideas. It forced the early churches to consider the question of continuity with its Jewish writings, the Jewish beginning, and to affirm a unity of salvation history in the Bible, as we know it now. It pointed out the, the need for a Christian canon of authoritative writings, because the New Testament, as we know it, was not set. And so they needed to decide, what are going to be the authoritative writings that we're going to point to? It pointed to the need for common creeds and con common confessional statements and baptismal statements, again, based on the writings uh, the authoritative writings. And these creeds, these baptisms, are great um, teaching ways to teach. And it also raised the question, who gets to speak for the church? So all of this, and you're going to be really happy because I'm almost done, all of this helped the early church make important choices and in the process define its teaching and acknowledge um, 
that certain uh, institutions were the bearer of its teachings and its traditions. And as a result, a normative Christianity began to develop where we all agree about these things. This is what makes us Christian and not something else. And that was a new stage in the development of Christianity. And that, all of this today, is what is preparing us for next week when we're actually really going to talk about when they came down with a definitive statement, we're going to talk about the Nicene Creed. Okay, I just want those of you who have never heard the Nicene, don't know what I'm talking about, to raise your hand again. I'm going to try to think I have a photographic memory here. Okay. So I want you guys to be here next week. And for those of you who are like, oh yeah, Nicene Creed, that old fuddy-duddy boring thing, you show up too because it's fascinating. And I do have a fondness for it, and you don't have to feel about it the same way that I do, but I do want you to be here next week so that you can see why it matters. All right. It's when I... um, go back and think about church history. I am just in awe that we're here today. There were so many ways it could have been snuffed out. So many ways. I mean, would we have the guts to die for Jesus today? Would you not get a good job because of your faith? You'd be thinking, how about your kids, you know? Would you be the pariah in the neighborhood where they're trying to figure out how to get rid of you because clearly you're the terrorist or something, you know, you're causing the downfall of the empire? There's so many ways this faith could be, have been snuffed out. It could not have made it, and yet it did. And these earliest Christians, to me, are heroes. You have no idea what they had to go through. And almost every name that I mentioned in this was killed for the faith. It just gets to me. But it also, sorry, points to me about the Spirit's work because it was the Spirit, that power, that transforming work of the Spirit that kept the faith going. All right. I'm going to end on a note that you're going to think, why don't you go to? Because this is the future of where this talk is going to. These are words by Wendell Berry. Uh, he's a farmer and a poet in New England. He's still alive today. I think he's in his 90s. I believe that the world was created and approved by love, that it subsists, coheres, and endures by love. And that insofar as it is redeemable, it can be redeemed only by love. I believe that divine love, incarnate and indwelling in the world, summons the world always toward wholeness, which ultimately is reconciliation and atonement with God. Today's communion, one of the important pillars of our shared symbolic language. It's based on the writings that these earliest believers turned to as the core of the faith. That night that Jesus was betrayed, he broke bread, poured the wine, said, this is my body and my blood shed for you. I'm going away, but the Spirit will come. The Spirit will be with you. And that's what we experienced this morning. This... Mm. I call it a rite, but it's also R-I-T-E, but it's also uh, this enacted metaphor. You're walking down here for this the same way Christians have for 2,000 years. We are 
reenacting this and, and choosing again to say, this is my faith, this is my family. So I'm going to invite the band up. And when you guys come up for communion, try to come up the center aisles, go back down the side aisles. Uh, oh, I, I'm supposed to give a little plug. And I, see, see this cool thing? Not you, you are cool. But this cool thing behind Andrew? Uh, we're gonna, the re- reason this room looks different today is a play is coming. And so uh, each Sunday when we come, you might see new things, but it's also a great idea to remember to buy a ticket when they come on for sale. All right. Anyway, you're going to come up here, take the bread and the wine from the ushers, go back and sit. It's nice if you go down the side, those far aisles when you can go back down and sit, but if you, bump, if you mess up, don't worry about it. Take the bread and the wine at your leisure when you're sitting there, when you feel ready. And then when church is over, we have a place to put it. So this is the invitation to communion for this morning. This is the table, not of the church, but of Jesus. He is our host. This table is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. You are invited. You have much faith and you who have little faith. You've been, you who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come because it is Christ who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. Amen.